I Read Comics, show number 61. This podcast has a theme, sort of, even though I don't usually do themes. And I wasn't planning on having a theme, but it just ended up that way. So the theme for this one is God, or lack of God, perhaps. And it just so happened that a number of things kind of came together for me this week, so I wanted to talk about it. Number one is I have put up on the I Read Comics blog, if you notice along the right-hand side, there's a red A there, and that's A for Atheist. Um, this is a red A that was... Uh, put out there by the out campaign, so-called, by the Richard Dawkins people, who are trying to encourage people who are atheists to come out and actually say they're atheists, because, as everyone knows, the most hated minority in the United States today are not um, gay people or even Muslims, but atheists, which I think is hilarious. So they're just trying to encourage people to get out there and say, hey, I'm actually an atheist. Um, and so I am. So I put the red A up there. So I feel that's pretty cool. They have a bunch of t-shirts and stuff over at richarddawkins.net, but the A is a little much for me in that context. Although I could see it would be very cute as like a little pair of earrings or something. So who knows? I might get one of those. So that was point number one. Point number two was that one of my favorite atheist podcasts, uh, Dogma Free America, is is winding down, which is really disappointing because I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I listened to a number of skeptical and otherwise anti-woo podcasts, and this is one of them. And the guy, Rich, who has been doing it for about a year, just said that it was getting to be too much work, and I certainly understand that. And he was getting it out every week. So I'm very sad that it's not going to be around anymore because I really liked it. Um, if you lis- if you enjoy listening to that sort of thing, I'm sure that the old episodes will be up there. And he had a number of interviews that were not... Um, timely in that they were related to anything that was going on. They were just people talking about um, their work or their books or the things that they did. So I'm going to encourage you to go listen to those. And then finally, um, in the non-comic related area, I've been reading a book which is Michael Palin's Diaries. And he has written diaries his whole life. And these cover the years from 69 to 79, which was the heyday of Python. And this last entry actually comes in 1979. It was when their Life of Brian movie was coming out. And they got all kinds of shit in England and other places um, for making the movie, essentially. And it is one of the most brilliant religious satires ever. So I can see why people misunderstood it. Most of them who, who didn't understand it or who criticized it never even saw it. Um, and lots of them confused the Brian character with Jesus, and he's not. Jesus is a separate character in the movie. But all that aside, I, I just found this section, which I thought was really nice and in a very Palinish way. So he is sitting in his home. He's trying to write something um, and think about an appearance that he has to make on a talk show later that evening with some people who were supposed to be debating him and Cleese about the Life of Brian movie. So he says... As I work in the afternoon on committing to paper some of my morning's thoughts, I find myself just about to close on the naughty question of whether or not I believe in God. In fact, I'm about to type, I do not believe in God. When the sky goes black as ink, there is a thunderclap and a huge crash of thunder and a downpour of epic proportions. I never do complete the sentence. But, you know, I pretty much take that as Michael Palin saying he's an atheist, so I like that. I thought that was kind of cool. Now, I have 
another newsy thing that I want to talk about right up front here, which is something that has to do with the Comics Podcast Network, which I mentioned once before, and I'm actually going to read a little bit so that I get it exactly right. It's called the Hero Initiative, Helping Comic Book Artists in Need. This holiday season, the Comics Podcast Network is proud to partner with the Hero Initiative and sponsor the Hero for the Holidays Drive. Hero creates a financial safety net for yesterday's creators who may need emergency medical aid, financial support for essentials of life, and an avenue back into paying work. It's a chance for all of us to give back something to the people who have given us so much enjoyment. We encourage our listeners and fellow comic book fans to remember the Hero Initiative during the holiday season and consider making a donation to this organization. You can visit Hero's website at heroinitiative.org to find out more. And you can donate with a credit card or a check through PayPal. You can also just send them a check to their address, which I'm putting up on the blog. And I'm also putting up the PayPal donate button in case you just want to give a little bit of money via PayPal. And, you know, I don't ask you guys for money for me ever. And I don't ask for money for other people unless it's a really good cause. And this is a really good cause. So I think if you can spare a couple of bucks, you know, toss it their way. It's a good thing to do. So I'm going to keep it at the top of the blog for a while. Um, let's see, let me just take a little quick musical break and then I'm going to come back with another God-related thing, which is my one review and then some other kind of uh, newsy things that I think are important. I'm not going to do the review first. I have another little piece of news that actually made me kind of sad this week, along with Dogma Free America winding down. Um, this is released by Fantagraphics, saying that Love and Rockets isn't going to be a comic book anymore. Not the kind of comic book it has been anymore. Um, it's going to go on hiatus effective immediately and return next summer in its third incarnation as a series of all original graphic novel-length releases. Each annual volume will comprise at least 100 pages of all new comics, split evenly between its creators Gilbert, Hamey, and sometimes Mario Hernandez. Um, And then there's some other stuff by Fantagraphic about why they're doing this, blah, 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 blah. So, of course I'm glad that they're going to a format that all of three of them feel is going to allow themselves to 
write better stories and express themselves better and tell the stories that they want to do. But man, it's going to be a long wait before it comes out. Uh, I mean, it's bad enough right now waiting for the next issue to come out. And now we're going to have to wait till next summer because that's when the first one is premiering at Comic-Con and then probably just regularly available in August. So we're going to have to wait. But the good thing is that um, there's some pages of art that are up here. This is from the uh, comicbookresources.com website where they cover this. And the art that they have looks like it's from a new story called The Search for Penny Century. And it starts with Maggie and Angel lying around the pool just chatting about stuff. And, uh, of course, they're looking fabulous and sexy because they are. And then there's a few more pages, and they're really rough, but it looks like... Um, Angel gets to go be a superhero, which is like the coolest thing in the entire world. She's wearing a mask and everything. And I was wondering if they were going to get back to the superhero stuff eventually, because superheroes were a huge part of the old Love and Rockets way back in the the old days, um, the olden times. And I, I loved it that it was kind of there right under the surface and sometimes it would pop up like Penny Century always wanted to be a superhero and that was the one thing that her rich husband with the horns, Costigan, could never give her. He could never make her a superhero. And then right towards the end of her story after he died, it looked like she was a superhero, but we never found out why or how or what happened to her, which is, I guess, the plot point for In Search of Penny Century. So I'm really curious to see what he does with it. Um, It got me thinking about an old, old, old story about Maggie, who became a superhero sidekick for one story. She was the sidekick to Ultimax, who was a, um, just a, you know, run-of-the-mill superhero strong guy who was down in his luck and she found him and they had to go fight this guy named Maniac and he used to have a sidekick that was called Go-Go Girl but she disappeared and so Maggie gets to be Go-Go Girl for a little while and like a real superhero with a cape and everything and it was so cool and it it was uh, framed by her telling this story to to uh, Hopi and some other people and them not believing her at all but of course it really did happen. So I just love the superheroes, the way they're done in Love and Rockets, and I'm really, really looking forward to this next stuff. So I'm just very sad that it's going to take so long. Um, They are continuing to put out the new Tales of Old Palomar, and I have the second book, and I read it, and I want to talk about it because it's got a bunch of really cool science fiction elements in it. Um, They are continuing to do other things, the the two, Los Bros Hernandez, um, I talked about Sloth last time, and someone just gave me uh, the trade of Mr. X, which has some really film noirish cool stuff by both of them in there. So I haven't gotten a chance to read it. I only got it the other day, but I'm looking forward to reading that and uh, seeing what kind of cool, unusual, weird stuff they have in there. Okay, let me see what else is on my list of things. Um... I'm going to talk about the book now before I forget what I have to say about it. It's God-related. It's called Olympus, and it was published by Humanoid slash DC Comics, uh, written by Jeff Johns, and the art here is by Chris Griminger and Butch Geis. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Chris Griminger is the other writer, and Butch Geis is the artist, and Dan Brown is the colorist. And uh, let's see. This came out in 2005. Um, the English version is copyright 2005, so now I'm wondering if this was um, published in French first or something. I don't really know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Here's the story. Um, a bunch of people are in Greece, and 
somehow they get caught in a storm and they go to an island where all the Greek myths are happening. So there's a cyclops who they have to fight and then there are um, birds that try to attack them and then there's a minotaur and then there's a labyrinth and then um, there's some other bad guys that they have to fight and the whole point of this thing is that they have to um, put Pandora's box back where it belongs into this uh, case, I guess. <laughs> and, oh, then there's some Pegasus. Pegasi? More than one? Flying horses? Um, and, and Medusa is in there, too, and, and some other stuff. So it's a whole big mishmash of Greek mythology that's all tied up in, into one story here. And um, I have to say, you know, the art's okay. There is a gratuitous girl in a bathing suit who is like the... Um, the vain, self-absorbed girl who eventually proves her worth by having uh, archery skills, I believe. But she is in a tiny, teeny-weeny little black bathing suit throughout for no reason other than they had to have a girl in a tiny, teeny-weeny little black bathing suit throughout so they could show her, um, you know, mostly naked. And there are three main women in here. Um, the girl in the teeny tiny bikini who's blonde, her sister who's got red hair, and then the main woman who's an archaeology professor who is black who has the brown hair. So we have all three flavors of women. It was good that they remembered to do that because, you know, that's the rule. If you have three women, uh, you have to have them all have different hair colors because that's the rule. And then, um, you know, in the, the typical manner of these sorts of stories, there's some dumb backstory, which I'm not going to go into, about how they hook up with... Uh, nominally bad guys who are like pirates or something and uh the the pirates are like the white guy who's the leader who has blonde hair and a beard who look, looks kind of like Vio Mortensen and then um the other good bad guy is a, an enormous black guy who is um you know shown to be sort of uh the the stand-up guy like has some morals and ethics and things like that. And we think he dies, but he really doesn't. And then the other guys who are with them, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, they have names, but they're, they're red shirts. They're just there to get killed and they do get killed. Of course, one of the red shirts is a guy who's kind of devious, but he gets killed like a lot earlier than I thought he would. Um, oh, and there's another good guy in there who, uh, doesn't really have much of a personality at all. Um, there's like hinting at some violent and disturbing backstory that he has, but it's never explained, so who cares about him? Um, and then at the end, we have all of our main characters surviving and doing a very his, um, heroic pose on the beach. So, um, if you can tell, I didn't really like this very much. It wasn't very engaging, and they rip through all of the Greek myths so fast, you don't really get a chance to ruminate on them or examine them or even find out what's interesting about the particular myth. You know, the stuff with the Minotaur and the Labyrinth, it just zips right by you. And the whole thing about the Labyrinth in the story is that it was such a complicated thing you could only get through if you had this thread that um, you could use to find your way back out. And otherwise, you would never find your way out and you would die in there, either from starvation or the big old monster would kill you. And there's one shot, there's one drawing, one full page that shows you um, how weird and creepy it's supposed to look, but that's it. There's like no 
discussion or they don't dwell on how hard it is to find their way through. And you know, like, they don't, at this point, the, the, our heroes don't have the thread anymore, but the guy who has the thread was bleeding. So they follow his trail of blood through this labyrinth that looks like it's, I don't know, half a mile across. So I find it a little bit hard to believe that he was bleeding like that. They could follow his drops of blood. So, uh, accurately throughout the whole thing. But, you know, take a classic Greek myth and combine it and, you know, put it into, like, two pages. That's not the way to do this, you know? And uh, it's just very frustrating if you know anything about the stories, how interesting they are. And, you know, the, the points of the myths are to emphasize how clever the heroes are in figuring out insoluble problems, right? So how do you find your way through a labyrinth? Well, you have to think of something clever. How do you defeat Medusa? Well, you can't look straight at her because she'll turn you into stone, so you have to figure out a way not to look at her, but to kill her at the same time. Um, you know, another one that goes along with the labyrinth is threading the conch. How can you get a thread through a conch? Well, you tie it to an ant and put some honey at one end, and the ant will find its way through. It, it's, you know, about celebrating ingenuity and creativity and not just fighting and not just killing people. Of course, in any Greek myths, there's lots of killing and stuff, but the best ones are about thinking your way out. And this book doesn't have a whole lot of that, you know? It's like they don't have to figure out new ways of solving any of these problems, and the monsters are big and creepy, and they basically have to kill them, and the monsters die way, way too easily. I mean, honestly, if you've ever read any of the, the myths, monsters take a hell of a lot of killing, way more than they have in here. And it has sort of this unsatisfying resolution, like, why was Pandora's box not in this thing in the first place? And why does putting it back there suddenly make everything okay and hit the reset button and all the rest of it? And where were they to start with? None of that stuff is explained, so there's no backstory. I mean, not backstory, but there's no coherent story for why this happened, for why they ended up where they did, for why they had to go through all these tortures. And P.S., what would have happened if they hadn't done this, you know? Um, would the world have come to an end? Would would all of the supposed evils of Pandora's box be loosed on the world? And, you know, that's another thing. The thing about Pandora's box is it's not meant to represent actual evil, right? It's a story that was made up to explain why there are bad things in the world. It's like any other religious story, like, you know, the Adam and Eve thing with the apple, and I'm sure that there are others in other religions that I'm not familiar with, but it's a story to explain that. Before the box, things were great, and then the box was opened, and all of these things um, that had been put in there were loosed on the world. All the ills of the world came out of the box, and it was mankind's own fault for letting that happen. You know, Zeus said, don't let those things out of the box, and then they got let out of the box. And to make it real like that, and to, to say that such a box could exist now when we already have all the evils in the world, so that means if the box got opened, things would get worse? How much worse? And if we put the box back where it belongs, does that mean things get better or they just go back to the way they are now? I'm thinking too hard about this. And clearly the writer was not thinking too hard about this because it doesn't make any freaking sense. So um, not not one of my most favorite books, but, you know, there it is, suggested for mature readers and suggested for mature readers because um, 
I guess, the girl in the teeny tiny bikini or because of people and monsters getting killed with spears through them and stuff like that. Um, also got to say that the women, well, the one woman is black, so you can tell her apart, but the two women who are supposed to be sisters, okay, they're supposed to be sisters. They look exactly the same. They have exactly the same face. They're pretty much indistinguishable. And the other guys who are here, um, except for the blonde guy and the enormous black guy, all look exactly the same. I couldn't tell them apart at all. Even when someone was calling them by their names, still couldn't tell them apart at all. So I, I think that is a failing of the art that you actually can't tell who's talking or who's doing what or who's supposed to be the focus of the action. So um, there you go. That's that book. I don't want to read it anymore. Now, also on the list of things to talk about here, there were some interesting things on TV recently. One was the SpongeBob movie. So they made another movie, not a theatrical release movie, but a TV movie of SpongeBob. It was called Atlantis Square Pantis, which is a very, very silly title. And it turned out to be a musical, which I didn't expect. It was pretty clever. Um, the songs were good. The people who do the voices can sing pretty much. And uh, they actually used the idea that the people who live in it, well, people, the creatures who live in Atlantis came from another planet, that they're not creatures of this earth. And, you know, they were drawn sort of to look like the blue meanies in Yellow Submarine. Now, the only reason I'm really even talking about it is that the chief Atlantean guy, the king emperor guy, um, his voice was done by David Bowie. (laughs) And it wasn't really David Bowie doing David Bowie. It was David Bowie doing Alan Bennett which I thought was an interesting characterization. And, you know, he did a pretty good job and all that. But why is he doing a voice for SpongeBob? His kids are old enough now that, well, I don't know, his oldest one is probably almost as old as I am, but maybe he's got younger kids or something. I I don't quite get it, but um, he was kind of good. And uh, he got some, he, he delivered his lines well, I thought. You know, he's always had some fairly decent acting talent. So yeah, David Bowie and SpongeBob, two worlds colliding that I never would have imagined happening in a million years. Tonight, um, I'm recording this on Sunday night, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Um, I was alerted to the fact that there was a special episode of The Simpsons that was very comic book related. And it was actually really funny, the comic booky part. So the plot is that uh, there's a new comic book store in Springfield that is better than the Androids Dungeon and the comic book guy. And it opens and it's called Coolsville and Jack Black does the voice of the guy who runs it, Milo, who's suitably uh, sort of hip. He wears a pork pie hat and he listens to Korean covers of Tom Jones music. And the kids are all really, really digging the store. Now, it's interesting, of course, that on the, in the Simpsons world in Springfield, the people who frequent the comic book store are actual children and not, you know, middle-aged people. Um, and they all love to buy their comic books and, and stuff like that. The other interesting thing was that they actually got some comic book people to do voices. So um, the kids are there, and there's a, a huge comic book signing, and they've got um, Art Spiegelman, who did Mouse, Dan Klaus, who did Ghost World, and Alan Moore. And they got each of them to do their own voices. And it was really funny. I was really happy to, to see these guys there. Um, I was browsing around the web a little bit, and Alan Moore said he's a big Simpsons fan, so he was happy to do it. And the best part about it, they they really played to stuff that has happened to him. Um, he, he's sitting there signing and 
Bart says to him, Oh, Alan Moore, you wrote my favorite issue of Radioactive Man. And Alan Moore says, You like him even though I made him into a heroin-addicted jazz critic with no radioactive powers? <laughs> Which seemed like a very Moore thing to do. So that is my new phrase. I'm going to start using it. A heroin-addicted jazz critic with no radioactive powers. And then right after that, oh, and then Bart says back to him, Oh, who cares about the words? I only look at the pictures. Um, Milhouse comes up and asks him, asks Moore to sign a, a copy of Watchmen Babies. <laughs> which um, is something new. And he says, "And which is your favorite baby? They're all so cute. And then Moore gets up and he makes a speech about how, um, you know, corporations are stripping their, their artists' rights and the creators and blah, blah, blah. And, and Spiegelman says to settle down. So he reads an issue of Little Lulu and laughs and feels better. And then, of course, in, in the tradition of The Simpsons, um, they turn into superheroes and beat up the comic book guy. They rip off their shirts and they're all ripped underneath it. But it was really, really cool to see them in a Simpsons episode, especially Alan Moore, um, definitely playing to a minority audience there. And there were plenty of cracks about comic book readers and comic book artists and people who buy them and things like that. So it was very good. And, and I would urge you to get that, who knows, maybe off of a torrent or something. It's don't, not going to be on YouTube because they're not letting that stuff up there anymore. So I think that's about it for this show. I really want to get it done, get it out there. So let me do the usual commercials, which is to say that the wonderful music, as always, by the fabulous Ginger Mayerson. Um, go to Comic Relief in Berkeley, the only comic book store that matters, for all your holiday gift purchasing needs. I know I'm going to be going there to buy a bunch of stuff. And uh, a tiny little plug for the book Chase and Other Stories that I have a story in, which is now available through Lulu.com, but also to soon be available through Amazon and other outlets and has already gotten a couple of pretty nice reviews. So if you enjoy Gay Smut and you'd like to read some stuff that's not just straight out porn that actually has some story to it, you may enjoy this book. So I would encourage you to go buy it. And I think that's going to be it for now. I think I'm going to play another track from uh, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, one that I haven't played already, I hope. And that will close out this particular episode. <laughs> 